Well, welcome to our fourth lesson in our series, What Kind of God? We're doing a study on the attributes of God, the, the character of God. And, and the reason I chose to do this is because of what we're going through as a, a country and as a nation and as a world. Uh, we're going through this pandemic. We're going through uh, what, what's been called unprecedented times. And as we go through these kinds of situations and circumstances, we begin to question God. We begin to wonder, well, what kind of God would allow this to happen? And so we've been working our way through some various character qualities or attributes of God. And last week we looked at his omniscience, that he's all-knowing. He knows all. He knows the past, the present, and the future equally well. And one of the things about God's omniscience, as we dig into it and we begin to unpack it and understand it better, is we realize that we don't know everything. We don't know it all. And yet we're surrounded by know-it-alls. And if you get on social media, you see them everywhere. And, and maybe you are one sometimes when you you spout your opinions and you type out everything you know about every given subject, especially controversial ones like this pandemic and the government's response or non-response to it. We, we are surrounded by experts and know-it-alls of every stripe. And yet I think we all understand that they really don't know it all. You know, the internet has given every one of us this capacity, this forum for us to kind of spew our knowledge, what we think we know about any given topic at any given time of any given day, and it goes all around the world. Everybody's happy to, to tell you what they know about anything and everything. But you know, it's Harold, Harold Coffin who wrote, the fellow who thinks he knows it all is especially annoying to those of us who do. Isn't that true? You ever get on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and you, you see somebody who's spouted their opinion and you automatically well up with anger, resentment, frustration, and you want to write them, you want to respond to them because they've expressed their knowledge and it goes counter to what you think to be true. Everybody's an expert. Yeah, I ran across a, a new website I've never seen before. It's called the Cynical Website, and it's, it's pretty irreverent, but you can look up definitions. And so I looked up their definition of an expert. One of them was a, an expert is a person with more data than judgment. In other words, they got more information than they know what to do with, and, and they end up doing bad things with it, uh, the wrong thing with it. They come to wrong conclusions with what they think they know. An expert is a person knowledgeable enough about what's going on to be scared. And we are surrounded by people who are scared. We have doctors and nurses and scientists and epidemiologists who, who have all kinds of information, but they, they don't know what to do with it. And they know so much, it just literally scares them. And they end up scaring us. A third definition they had was, an expert is a specialist who knows everything about something and nothing about anything. I particularly like that one because I think sometimes that is so true in the world in which we live. Again, last week we talked about God's omniscience, that He's all-knowing. And this week we're going to expand on that and we're going to look at His wisdom. And, and, and the big word for that, the theological word for that is omnisapience. Now, I've never heard of that word until I began this study. I've known about the wisdom of God, I just didn't know it had a name. 
and, and you know, omniscience and omnisapience are not words that are found in the Bible, but they're theological terms that help us understand these character qualities, these attributes of God. And so we're going to look at the wisdom of God and, and take this idea that he's all knowing and couple with it the fact that he is all wise. But that begs the question, what's wisdom? What, what does it mean that, that God is all wise? Well, let's go back to the cynical website. Here's what they say about wisdom. It's what remains after depleting personal opinions. I love, I love that. You know, again, everybody's sharing their opinions on social media, but your opinions aren't necessarily wisdom. You know, sometimes we just spew things we've heard from somewhere else. We repost somebody else's post. We, we say what we've heard, but it's not truly wisdom. And so I love this definition. Wisdom is what is left over after you've spouted all your opinions. You know, James Dent defined wisdom this way. Intelligence is when you spot a flaw in your boss's reasoning. Wisdom is when you refrain from pointing it out. That is so true. Have you ever written an email out of anger, frustration, and, and you hit send and then you wish you could unhit it, that you could get it back because you realize, man, there's some things in there I probably shouldn't have said. That's wisdom. Wisdom is that ability to assess that I probably would have been better waiting, sitting on that, not sending it, looking at it again tomorrow, getting someone else to look at it. The former broadcast journalist, Edward R. Murrow, who is no longer with us and, and lived in a time when we didn't have the internet or the information age. He said something somewhat prophetic. And speaking of this idea of wisdom, he says, just because your voice reaches halfway around the world doesn't mean you're wiser than it we, when, when it reached only to the end of the bar. I kind of butchered that, so let me read it again. Just because your voice reaches halfway around the world doesn't mean you're wiser than when it reached only to the end of the bar. He was a journalist. He was a broadcast journalist. He had access to people across the world through his broadcast, through his newscast. But before he was a newscaster, he kind of compares it to, you know, sitting at a bar and spouting his opinion and the only one who could hear you, it only went as far as the end of the bar. But now you and I have the capacity to get on the internet and reach people all the way around the world and share our opinion, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, just the other day, my wife got on the internet and she used Zoom to have a conference call with 40 plus women, Christian women, and they talked about leadership and mentoring and discipleship. See, we have this incredible capacity provided for us through technology. But it doesn't mean that everything we read and everything we post is wise. So that's why this topic is going to be so important. So we're going to talk about our um, omnisapient God. Now, again, that's not a word you find in the Bible. It's not a word that most of us are familiar with. In fact, I tried to look it up in the dictionary and it's not even there. Omnisapient is not there. You can find omni, you can find sapient, but you can't find omnisapient. Because it's not a word we use anymore. So what is it? Well, we saw last week that omni simply means all. But what about sapient? Well, you can look up sapient in the dictionary, and here's the definition. Having or showing great wisdom or sound judgment. So we know that 
based on this word, this doctrine, what it says is that God is all-wise. He's omniscient, He's all-knowing, but He's also all-wise. He has great wisdom. And so we have to couple these two things together when we talk about God, that He is all-knowing and He's all-wise. But why, why do we need to know that? Well, look at Proverbs 3, verse 19. It says, By wisdom the Lord found in the earth. By understanding He created the heavens. He didn't do it with knowledge. He did it with wisdom. And that'll make more sense as we, go dig, as we dig deeper into this topic. By wisdom the Lord found in the earth. In His wisdom He created what we know as the earth, the universe, the stars, the sun, the moon, you and I, the plants. And by understanding, He created the heavens. Proverbs 12, 13 says, But true wisdom and power are found in God. Counsel and understanding are His. He is wise. He has incredible wisdom. And He puts that wisdom to use. And yet we also know from Isaiah 40, 28, His understanding, His wisdom is unsearchable. It's greater than we have the capacity to understand. God's wisdom like His knowledge is far greater than anything we can put our heads around. His wisdom is all-encompassing just like His knowledge. It in involves everything from the universe and His creation of it, His maintenance of it, but also for you and I and His care for you and I. So what do we, what do, we do with this? Where do we go with it? Well, look at how Paul responds in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. When considering God's wisdom, his understanding, he says, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and his knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. See, he's acknowledging as he talks about the gospel, as he talks about Jesus Christ coming, and, and as he writes to the Roman believers, he, he says, I can't even fully get my head around God's ways. I can't understand how He does things. His wisdom is too great for me. His knowledge is beyond my capacity to comprehend. See, He's blown away. But we have to dig into this and understand what's the difference between His wisdom and His knowledge. Aren't they synonymous? Didn't we cover this last week? No, we really didn't. We didn't really talk about God's wisdom. And His wisdom is one of the things that should give us peace in the midst of the storm in which we find ourselves. I love Charles Spurgeon, the great English uh, preacher. And he says this, Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. In other words, you can be fully knowledgeable of a lot of things, but it doesn't mean you're wise. It doesn't mean you're going to make wise decisions or even give wise advice. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. You've probably met people like that. You've probably been that people, that person. You've probably taken what you think you know and given really bad advice, foolish advice to people. And you've probably had that happen to you. Listen to what he says. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. Somebody who thinks he knows it all and is more than eager and willing to share it with others. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. See, knowledge is information. Wisdom is what you do with it, how you put it to good use. And what we're going to learn is that, 
the kind of God we worship, the kind of God that we place our hope and trust in, is a God who is not only all-knowing, not only has a lot of information at his hand, all information at his hands, but he knows what to do with it. He knows how to use it. Our God knows what to do with all that he knows. You know, I remember when I was a kid in school and I had to take algebra. I hated math. I hate math to this, to this day. And my question to my teacher every week, just like everyone else's, is what in the world are we going to do with this? Why do I need to know algebra? I can't tell you the last time I used algebra. Uh, I, I, I have knowledge in my head that I don't know what to do with. We fill our head with knowledge every day through the internet, social media, TV, books, magazines, but we don't know what to do with it. See, God doesn't have that problem. Norman Geisler, in his book on systematic theology, says wisdom refers to God's unerring, in unerring ability to choose the best means to accomplish the best ends. I, I love how he uses the word unerring. He, he, he never uses his knowledge unwisely, wrongly, erringly. He always uses it in the right way to accomplish the best ends. That's wisdom. And it's important that we understand that our God is not only all-knowing, He's all-wise. A.W. Tozier, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says this about wisdom. Wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. Now, you could apply that to any of us, any human being, but it more particularly applies to God because we can take what we know and we can reach non-perfect ends. We, we, can, we can come up with plans that don't really accomplish either what we set out to do or what might be the best thing to do. But that's not true of God. Wisdom sees the end from the beginning, so there can be no need to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless precision. That part of his definition only applies to God. See, I can't see the end from the beginning. I'm not all-knowing. I can't look into the future and know how this is going to work out. I can make a decision today hoping that it will turn out a certain way, but I have no clue how it's going to turn out. And there's a good chance it will turn out poorly. There's a fair chance it might turn out okay. But see, for God, that's never a problem. He sees everything in focus because of his wisdom. And everything he does comes out with flawless precision. He knows what to do with what he knows. J.I. Packer says, Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Now, the problem you and I have is that we're not all wise. We may be wise in some areas. We may have facets of wisdom but we're not all wise. And so we can't achieve the surest and the best end. We can hope for it. We can try for it. But see, with God, everything he does is perfect. Everything he sets out to do is accomplished because he has the power to see and the inclination, the ability to choose the best and highest goal. And it always be accomplished. 
And it all ties back to the fact that God knows. God knows all. He knows the past, the present, the future. And because he's all-knowing, guess what? He knew man would sin. He knew Adam and Eve were going to sin. And because God is all-wise, he had a plan in place to deal with it before it ever happened. Now, you may already know this, but I'm afraid there are some of you watching this video who have never considered this, that God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin even before, before he created them. And he also knew what he was going to do about it when they did it. He had a plan in place. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23. God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. Now, this is fast-forwarding to the New Testament, but it's the same principle. When it comes to Jesus Christ being betrayed, being uh, arrested, put on trial, handed over to the Romans, nailed to a Roman cross, put to death, and put in a borrowed tomb, God knew all about it. He knew what would happen before it ever happened. And he knew because he had a prearranged plan in place. God knew man would sin in Adam and Eve, and God had a plan in place to fix that problem in Jesus Christ. And it would involve his betrayal, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. First Peter tells us God chose him, Jesus, as our ransom long before the world began. That's, that's such an important insight that we need to grasp. That long before God created the world, he had planned to send his son as our ransom. Paul told the Corinthian believers, to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God, from man's perspective, is wiser than the wisest of human plans. You know, lost human beings look at the, the gospel and, and they see it as foolishness. And we'll see another passage that deals with that in just a second. They look at it and they go, a God sent his son to take on humanity and live a sinless life and die a sinner's death and get nailed to a cross. And that's how we get made right with God. That's foolish. That's ridiculous. That's nonsense. But here Paul describes it as the power of God. Christ is the power of God, and he's also the wisdom of God. The power to redeem and restore and recreate those of us who were marred by sin. God had a plan in place. See, he wasn't surprised by sin. God didn't look down one day and see Adam and Eve in the garden and, and wonder what happened. Where are they? Why are they hiding? What have they done? He knew they were going to do it before they ever did it. And Jesus Christ was not his plan B. He and the Holy Spirit didn't look down from heaven and go, oh my gosh, they ate of the tree we, we told them not to eat of. They, they've done the forbidden thing. Now what do we do? And they call in Jesus and say, you know what? You're going to have to go to, go to earth. You're, you're, you're our plan B. This wasn't intended. No, they knew all along. They knew from before the foundation of the earth. All three members of the Trinity knew this was going to have to happen. And God's plan to send Christ predated creation. Long before Adam and Eve were ever made, long before Adam and Eve ever sinned, God had planned to send his son. First Peter 1.20 says, long before the world began. Now listen to what Paul has to say. 
He writes, I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan of God. Here he is talking about this plan of God. The creator of all things had kept secret from the beginning. In other words, before the creation of the world, God had a plan, this mysterious plan. What's he talking about? He goes on, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church, the body of Christ, to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he's telling them about this mysterious plan. And the plan he's talking about that once again goes back to from before the foundation of the world, before creation, this mysterious plan involved the church, the creation of the body of Christ. We know from Acts chapter 2 and chapter 3 that the church began there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples in that upper room. And from that point forward, they went out empowered by the Holy Spirit and it was not only life-changing, it was world-changing. It was paradigm-shifting. The world would change because of what happened that day. And the church began. And Paul calls it a mystery, a mysterious plan of God. See, the prophets didn't know about this. They didn't know about the church. Uh, the, the Jewish writers and philosophers and thinkers had no concept of Jew and Gentile coming together in this thing called the church, united under the name of Jesus Christ. But he says this was God's eternal plan. That means it went, it went back into eternity before the foundation of the earth. And it's going to carry on into eternity. When you and I spend eternity with God the Father and God the Son, See, we have an all-wise God. But why is that important? What's that got to do with you and I living in 2020 here in the United States or wherever you may live as you watch this video? Why is this important? Isn't God's knowledge enough? Isn't the fact that God knows enough? Well, well God knows, but what's he going to do about it? What is he going to do with the knowledge that he has? See, God wisely acts on what's, what he knows. He takes all that information that he knows about all things, including you and I, and everything about our lives, and he acts on it, and he wisely acts on it. Tony Evans, in his book, Theology You Can Count On, says, when we talk about wisdom, we refer to more than just knowledge. Wisdom is more than having information. Wisdom has to do with the use of the information we have rather than just its possession. It's not enough to know. You have to know what to do with what you know. And see, God always acts wisely on all that he knows. He takes this vast, unending, incomparable knowledge that he has, and he acts on it. He puts his knowledge to use. He knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin, and he came up with a plan. Even before they were created, even before they sinned, he took what he knew, and he came up with a plan. He didn't knee-jerk react. He had a plan in place. He wisely put a plan in place. Now listen to this. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan, and this is the plan. Now, what's he talking about? Once again, we're talking about Jesus Christ, part of the plan of God. He was sent by God, or the plan was put in place to send him 
by God to earth long before Adam and Eve ever sinned. Well, it goes on. At the right time, He, God, will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For He chose us in advance, and He makes everything work out according to His plan. So once again, we hear Paul talking about this plan of God. And this plan involved Jesus Christ, the mysterious will of God that shows itself through the mysterious plan of God, and it's revealed through the church of God, and it all revolves around Jesus Christ and His ransom, His redemption of mankind, lost, sin-prone, and hell-bound mankind. God came up with a plan, and everything He did from Jesus taking on human flesh, Jesus living a sinless life, Jesus being crucified, Jesus rising again from the dead, Jesus ascending into heaven, Jesus one day returning, which is what this is talking about, was part of God's plan. See, when it says, at the right time, He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, that's a reference to the second coming of Christ, when He comes back to earth and He sets everything right, and He restores creation, the creative order, created order, and He restores the world back to the way it was meant to be. Sin is done away with. And, and He puts things back to the way He intended them to be. That was always part of His plan. Everything was done according to His plan. So He took what He knew, and He used it. And He used it wisely to develop a plan and there's no reason that you and I should have uncertainty. Yes, everything around us is uncertain. There's all kinds of questions, all kinds of confusion. There's all kinds of things happening that could create uncertainty, but we should not be uncertain about our God, that He knows and He has a plan. Our God is all-knowing. Our God is all-wise. And what's fantastic about those two things is that His wisdom is tied directly to his knowledge, and both are linked to his purposes. See, God can't be just all-knowing and not all-wise. He can't be all-wise without being all-knowing, and the two of them together are linked to his purposes. They are what accomplish his purposes. So what I want to do is I want to jump into the Old Testament and just look at a couple of passages, one in Exodus, one in Genesis, to help drive home this idea that our God not only knows our God knows what to do, and what He does is always wise and, and good. So we, we see that God in chapter 3 of Exodus is going to have a conversation with Moses. And He meets Moses at the burning bush. And Moses is there in Midian, and, and he's fled from Egypt because he murdered a man. And what he doesn't know is that God has a plan for him. And that plan for his life is part of the greater redemptive plan for the people of Israel. So at that burning bush, he speaks to Moses, and here's what he says. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Now, keep in mind what he's saying. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry. I've seen, I've heard. Because of their taskmasters. And then he says, I know their sufferings. 
He's expressing to Moses what, what he's seen, what he's heard, and what he knows about the condition of the people of Israel in Egypt. And then he says, I'm going to do something about it. But first he lets him know, I'm aware. Now he's probably telling Moses some things that Moses doesn't even know. Now Moses was aware of the captivity. Moses had been there. He had been in the family. He had grown up in the family of Pharaoh. And he had seen the oppression of his own people because he was a Jew. And he had actually murdered an Egyptian who was abusing a Jew. And because of that, he had fled to Midian. And he had been there for many years. And now God has shown up and he says, you know what? I know too. I'm aware. He says, I know. I'm aware of the situation of the people in Israel. And he tells them, I know, I've seen, and I've heard. Three things. All three are expressions of his omniscience, which we talked about last week. I know these things. I'm aware. I get it. I know what's going on. But see, now he's going to tell Moses, I'm going to take that knowledge and I'm going to do something with it. And he says, I have come down to deliver them. I'm here. I'm talking to you. I've revealed myself in this burning bush and I have come down because I'm going to do something about their condition. He says, and I'm going to bring them up out of the land, that land, Egypt, and I'm going to bring them to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites. I'm going to keep the promise I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that I'm going to give them a land, a permanent land, the land of promise. See, God says, I have seen, I have heard, I know, and now I've come down, and I'm going to do something about it. I have a plan in place. What we see in this passage is God knew, and now he's acting upon it. I love what A.W. Tozer says in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. Wisdom is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. God's wisdom is his capacity to take what he knows. I have seen, I have heard, I know, and I have come down. The ability to devise perfect ends to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. And here he is speaking to Moses out of the burning bush. And he's telling him, I've got a plan. But had he just become aware of their situation? This had been going on for 400 years. Was it their cries that had come to his ears? Was God up in heaven and suddenly goes, what's that noise? I hear cries. I hear people moaning. I hear complaining. And then he looked down and he sees, oh my gosh, the people of Israel are stuck in Egypt. And did he just become aware of these things? Were his actions a response to this new information that he had received? Well, the answer is obviously no. Because if, if we go back to the book of Genesis, in chapter 15, God has something that he expresses to Abram, the father of the Jewish people. God had called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he had told him, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be the inheritance of your people. And he tells him at one point in verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, know for sure, that your offspring, of which he had none at that point in time, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, 
and will be servants or slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He says, know for certain, know this, Abram, they're going to be in a land where they will be there for 400 years. They will be slaves of the people of that land. But then he goes, I will bring judgment on the nation. This is clearly talking. It's a prophetic statement about their captivity in Egypt. And yet this is hundreds of years earlier. He says, know for certain, know this. Hundreds of years earlier, God was telling Abraham, what was going to happen to his descendants. He was telling him what he knew. They're going to end up slaves in Egypt for 400 years. How did he know it? Because he had ordained it. It was part of his plan. It was part of his divine purposes. But he also had a plan in place for the problem. He knew what he was going to do. Long before Abram even had descendants, long before Joseph ended up being sold into slavery in Egypt long before Jacob and his family showed up to escape a famine in the land of Canaan, long before the people were treated as slaves for 400 years. God had a plan in place for their redemption. So if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, God goes on in verse 9 and tells Moses this, Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. In other words, again, I've heard their cry, and I have also seen their oppression, which the Egyptians oppressed them. And then he turns to Moses and he says this, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. Guess what, Moses, you're part of my plan. And I've had you in my plan from before the foundation of the world, long before you were ever born. You were part of my plan of redemption for the people of Israel. That you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. See, God is all wise. God is all knowing. God has a plan in place long before the problem ever rears its ugly head. And again, how does Paul, the Apostle Paul, respond to this? Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. How incredible it is that God's wisdom is so great and vast and unbelievable. Paul was blown away by what he understood about God. And all he could say is, it's great. And he wrote to the Corinthian believers and he said, to those of us called by God to salvation, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is the greatest expression of God's power, bringing redemption to sinful men, and the wisdom of God, this plan that had been put in place before the foundation of the world to bring closure to man's sin problem. See, not only did God know about Israel's captivity to the Egyptians, he knew about mankind's captivity to sin, and he had a plan in place. And that plan involved Jesus Christ, just like the plan for Israel involved Moses. He goes on in verse 30, he says, God has united you, believers, with Jesus Christ. For our benefit, God made him, Christ, to be wisdom itself, the greatest expression of his wisdom as revealed in his plan of redemption. Christ made us right with God. He reconciled us to God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. What an incredible 
gift. And it's a reflection of the incredible nature of God's wisdom that Jesus Christ became His wisdom lived out in human flesh, nailed to a Roman cross, buried in a borrowed tomb, but He rose again on the third day and He has ascended on high. And as we'll see, He's going to one day return. See, God tells them in verses 20 through 23, we back up into that chapter, God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. He has um, diminished the wisdom of this world because his, his wisdom is right and righteous and true and just and good. Since God in His wisdom saw to it that the world would never know Him through human wisdom, nobody's ever going to find God through human wisdom. Instead, He has used our foolish preaching, that of Paul and the apostles, to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. See, I'm sure you've attempted to share the good news of Jesus Christ with a lost friend or, or co-worker or neighbor and had them go, ah, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't, I don't that's, that's hogwash. I don't get it. It's foolish. It, 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 it doesn't make sense. It's incomprehensible to them that, that a God would send his son to take on human flesh and live a sinless life and die a death he didn't deserve on a cross and then rise again three days later and then eventually ascend on high. It, none of it makes sense. It's foolishness. But it is the wisdom of God. Because God had a plan in place. Long before He made the world. So God knows, but He also knows what to do. God knew about the, the sin of Adam and Eve, and He had a plan in place to fix it. God knew about the captivity of the people of Israel, and He had a plan in place to fix it. And all that he does is perfect and just and right. Everything that God does is wise, perfect, just, and right. And we need to not only understand that, but we need to embrace it. We may not understand all of his ways. We may not even like his ways. But we can rest assured that he is wise in all that he does in all that he does. You may not like what you're going through right now. You may not like the circumstances in which we live. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and a follower of God, you can rest assured that God is wise and just and right in all that he does. So this week we have one discussion question. And I want you to wrestle with a quote by A.W. Tozer. Now, I've quoted a lot from him, and I'm going to continue to do so because he's one of my favorite writers. But this quote in particular I want you to wrestle with, and I want you to get with your, your wife, your, your friends, your family members. You know, Get on the phone if you have to. Zoom if you have to. But I want you to talk about this with other believers. And here it is. It's vitally important that we hold the truth of God's infinite wisdom as a tenet, a belief in our creed, what it is we say we believe. But that's not enough. We must, by the exercise of faith and by prayer, bring it into the practical world of our day-to-day -day experience. What's he saying? It's important that you and I understand this doctrine, that we embrace and have, have a cognitive understanding of 
what it means that God is all wise. That's important, but it's not enough. It's got to become practical. And that's where I want you to wrestle is, how do you begin to take the omnisapience of God and apply it to your everyday life? And I want you to look around the world in which you live. I want you to, as you scroll through Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and as you watch the news, as you discuss with friends and coworkers, I want you to think about how does the fact that God is all wise impact your day-to-day life right here, right now, because it can and it should. So Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share this incredible doctrine. I pray that you would open our eyes, help us to see the truth of this and the impact it should have on our lives. Lord, would you help us to wrestle with how we take this and apply it to the day-to-day experiences of our lives, what we're going through right now. Father, we are grateful that you had a plan in place, that you knew about the sin of Adam and Eve, and you had a plan in place to rectify it. And that one day, Father, you're sending your son back to earth, and he is going to restore everything back to the way you originally intended it, that he is going to redeem and restore creation. And that, Father, we, because we are believers in Jesus Christ, are assured of an eternal relationship with both you and he that will last for eternity. Father, we are grateful and we love you and we praise you. And along with Paul, we say, oh, how great. Oh, how good. Oh, how wonderful. Unbelievably difficult to understand, but how wonderful are your ways, including your wisdom. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, your son and our savior. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching this video, and I look forward to seeing you next week as we dig into yet another character quality of God. Have a great day.